Good morning. We will be reading from Amos chapter 6 this morning. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations, to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Calne and see, and from there go to Hamath the Great, then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The Lord has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it, And if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring the bones out of of the house, and shall say to him who is in the innermost parts of the house, Is there still anyone with you? He shall say, No. And he shall say, Silence, we must not mention the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord commands... And the great house shall be struck down into fragments, and the little house into bits. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison, and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice in Lodabur, who say, Have we not by our own strength captured Carnaim for ourselves? For behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. And they shall oppress you from Labo Hamath to the brook of the Arabah. May God be glorified by the preaching of his word. Amen. Thank you, sir. And as always, let us pray to our God as we come to his word. Our God and our Father, how grateful we are to be able to come and consider your word. And we recognize, Father, that this is your word that has been revealed to us by you. And so as we come, we ask for your help. Father, help us to understand and illuminate the meaning of these words to our minds. And help us, Father, to not only understand in our minds, to not only be hearers of the word, but more and more to become doers. So, Father, convict us of the truth of this word. And as the double-edged sword that it is, Father, help it to continue to penetrate and pierce down into the very depths of our beings and to expose all of the sin that remains there and to lead us in the everlasting way. Father, may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of our hearts as your people be pleasing in your sight today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray that way a lot, don't we, in light of the, the, the words of Hebrews chapter 4 that I was referring to there while I was praying that, that when we approach God's Word, that the Holy Spirit will use it as that double-edged sword, which Hebrews says the Word of God is, to pierce us down to the division of soul and spirit, it says, joints and marrow, in other words, The Word of God is intended to to pierce down to the deepest, darkest recesses of our inner beings, to to pierce into us and to discern, Hebrews says, the very thoughts and intentions of our hearts. That's, That's what's supposed to happen when we read God's Word. It's supposed to expose all of the sin that remains in us down in those hidden places that we don't let anybody see. 
so that God might continue this work that He has begun in us to remove that sin from us and to grow us in godliness and holiness and to transform us by the renewing of our minds. And we, we pray that way often because the reality is, and it's true for all of us, that there is always sin remaining in us. And so there's always this need for ongoing transformation. And a part of that transformation has to involve this growing awareness in ourselves of the depths of the sin that remains in us all the way down in those recesses that we work hard to keep anyone else from seeing. There's got to be a growing willingness in us to acknowledge this this sin to ourselves and to confess it to God and to be diligent by the divine power of His Word and Spirit to be killing sin at at its very root and putting it to death in our mortal bodies. And I'm not just talking, of course, about the big obvious, outward manifestations of sin, like stealing and murder and rape and pillaging. Sure, none of us do those things. It's kind of easy for us, if we're honest, to to put up a kind of outward facade of righteousness and holiness and godliness. I do these outward things well, and I'm surely, surely I stay away from doing these outward things, but, but inwardly we're harboring the actual roots of sinfulness on the inside and, and letting them go unchecked. But sin, according to God's Word, it's not just the stuff that we do on the outside. First and foremost and mostly, it's an inner moral principle that runs way, way down much deeper than the surface of our words and our actions. Sin is the the root of those thoughts and intentions of our hearts that Hebrews 4 talks about. That's where God wants to do the real work. What are the intentions of your hearts? What are the inclinations of of your heart? What, it, what are the attitudes in our heart which, which permeate our lives and then lead to and, and give rise to the words and the deeds? That's what God really cares about. The attitudes. That's what we really need to allow the Word of God to expose. And one of the most core attitudes and inclinations and intentions of our hearts that is attached to every other sinful impulse within us and gives rise, it's behind every sinful word and every sinful deed, but this attitude that's attached to and gives rise to all of the rest is is probably the thing that we're most resistant to admitting and confessing and repenting of and dealing with, and that attitude is the core heart sin of pride. Pride. Augustine. 4th century theologian who was so massively influential in the early church, Augustine said in his, in his work that he wrote called Confessions, where he chronicles his young life as a sinner, and he was given to all kinds of sin, outwardly greed and theft and lust and immorality of all kinds, that he confesses in this book, And he talks about how he became redeemed when the Word of God seized him and convicted him of all of this sin. But what it convicted him of the most was the root of it all. And he calls the core of it all and the root of it all the sin of pride. The sin of pride. He wasn't humble before the God of the universe. That's what led to every other sinful desire and impulse and thought and inclination and word and deed in his life. And it wasn't until he truly began to identify and confess and mortify the pride of his heart that he began to grow in holiness in his life. The pride has to die. So I I just think that all too often, and I say this by experience of myself, too many Christians are primarily focused on the outside of the cup when it comes to dealing with sin. Instead of recognizing and confessing and repenting of the pride that lies beneath it all. That that sense that I'm, 
I'm important enough to be able to, to justify doing what I want in this world when I want, even when that means not honoring God with my life and my words and my deeds and my body. Jerry Bridges <clears throat> calls pride one of those, he calls it respectable sins. He wrote a whole book called Respectable Sins. Of course, there are no sins that are respectable. We, we, we treat them like they are, though, is his point. We say, well, murder and adultery and these things are not respectable. These things are not acceptable. But we don't deal with the inner things like ingratitude and anxiety and pride. We treat them as if they're respectable and it's okay. But see, that's what gives rise to all the rest. We tend to think that pride is, is trivial, that it's normal. Everybody's got pride, so we allow it to fester in our hearts. This sense, pride, pride is this sense of entitlement that we have, this, this sense of deserving that we have within us because we think of ourselves as being special. Sometimes we think of ourselves as being superior to others, better than others because of something about us. And we expect to be seen and recognized and treated according to what we believe ourselves to be in relationship to others. It's that sense of moral superiority that wants to see ourselves as better somehow because we look better, we think, than other people. We've achieved more than other people. We've accomplished better things than other people. We've done better things. We know more. We've read all the right books as opposed to these idiots over here who are reading all the wrong books. And so we look down on them in order to elevate ourselves. Our preferences are better and mean that we have better taste. Whatever it is. We want to be recognized for something that's better in us. Our successes, and so we boast. Sometimes we try to do it humbly, but we're boasting and trying to make ourselves out to be better. Uh, we want to be recognized for our successes. We look down on others, even if we're careful not to really let anybody see us doing it that way. Or on the other side of this same coin of pride, if we... If we don't just want to be recognized for our successes, we want to be recognized for our sufferings. And in our pride, we complain about how much we've suffered. We grumble and we indulge in self-pity. And we expect others to do things and say things to acknowledge how bad we've had it in comparison to everybody else. Pride is that sense of, of independence that we have. That our lives are ours to do with as we please. It's my life. It's my body. I, I'll choose, I'll desire what I want and, and choose to fulfill whatever desires I decide. And if God says, here's how you need to obey me, then I'll be the one to decide the limits of that obedience and when and how much and how far. Because we're independent and we resist submission to authority and and we tend to try to even stand above God and dictate to Him that extent to which we're willing to follow Him and obey Him and surrender our lives to His will as our God. Pride is manifest in all kinds of ways. All these inner core intentions and inclinations and impulses and attitudes of our hearts that, that, then, that then becomes the fuel for all kinds of other sin in our lives. Things that we feel entitled and, and justified to do because of who we think we are and what we think we've gone through and what we think we need in compensation for our circumstances. All kinds of indulgences that we feel like we have a right to and, and all kinds of license that we feel important enough to allow for ourselves. All kinds of unloving and insensitive and unkind ways that we tend to want to treat other people because we think of ourselves as being above them, as better than them, as superior to them. We think they haven't earned our love. They don't deserve our favor. They don't deserve our blessing. And so we don't have to give it to them. In the book of Amos, Amos has labored 
to make it painfully clear all of the ways in which Israel is a nation and the people of Israel have been living in all kinds of outward worldliness and ungodliness and immorality and unfaithfulness and idolatry and sinfulness. And here now in chapter 6, he boils it all down to this same inner heart attitude and inclination of human pride. It all comes from pride. Verse 8 is the central statement. The Lord God has sworn by Himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob. And I hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. Now we just read earlier from Psalm 47, responsibly, about the pride of Jacob in a positive sense, didn't we? Their pride has to do with the honor that God had bestowed on them. And when their focus is on the glory of God for what he has done for the heritage of Jacob then that pride, that honor, is a positive thing and a good thing. But when their focus is on themselves, on their own desires, on the fact that they feel superior, that they feel special, and so they feel entitled to do things their way, and when that pride starts to manifest itself in all of the sin that was being manifest in Israel, God abhors the pride of Jacob. All of the immorality in Israel, all of the idolatry, all the worldliness, remember all the injustice that they were guilty of, all the oppression of the poor and social wickedness, and all of the lust and greed and violence, all of it was an outgrowth of the core central foundational problem of pride in their hearts. And so as we delve into this chapter today and as God exposes the inner heart of sinful pride in ancient Israel, it's not just, as we've been seeing in past weeks, the corresponding sinfulness and wickedness and unrighteousness around us that we need to be identifying, like in our nation, right? And and reminded to stand firm against the same kinds of wickedness that are going on in our nation that were going on in, in Amos's nation, in our time, in our society. Around us. It's really now when we get to chapter 6, the focus becomes on the same inner heart of sinful pride within us, not, not just what's going on around us. That's what the two edged sword of God's word needs to expose and reveal. So, sure, you're, you're pretty good on the outside and you do the right things and you say the right things most of the time, but let God's word identify the pride in your heart this morning and the ways in which you feel like kind of a big deal and give yourself permission to do things that don't always honor God and bless others. Let's look at Amos 6 here together as God identifies this sinfulness which exists at the very top of Israelite society, their leadership, and exposes the root cause of it. He says, verse 1, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. Zion. Zion's where Jerusalem was down in the south, and immediately we remember that the main message of God so far has been directed at the northern kingdom of Israel, not the southern kingdom of Judah where Zion was, the mountain upon which Jerusalem was built and the temple was built. So why is he, why is he pronouncing a woe against Zion here? Well, the reason is twofold. First of all, because human sinfulness is not limited to just one group of humans in one place at one time and only under certain circumstances. The sin that God abhors is universal among human beings in all places and at all times and in all circumstances. And also, I think that God wanted to highlight the sin of those in Jerusalem and in the south because as soon as he says that, right, here's Amos preaching up in the north and he says, woe to those who are in Zion. Then everybody up in the north goes, yeah, yeah, those guys are the worst down there in Zion. We're better, right? And all of a sudden, God has put all of their pride and superiority on display. 
until the very next words that come out of Amos' mouth, and not just those wretched sinners down in Jerusalem, and those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. That's the north. The notable men are in focus now of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. That means the leaders of the nation of Israel, the notable men. A few few weeks ago, you remember from chapter 4 that God set his sights on the leading women of Israelite society, right? The hear this word, you cows of Bashan. He was castigating the, the women. Now God shows he's not a chauvinist. He doesn't have a a, a problem with women. He doesn't think that women are inferior to men. He's got a problem with sin in every human heart and every human life. And his focus here specifically is on the notable men of Israel. The ones to whom the house of Israel comes. So he's talking about the house of Israel is the royalty. right? The kings and the princes and the princesses. They come to these notable men of Israel. He's talking about the upper class of Israelite society, the aristocracy, the the men of exceptional wealth and prestige and influence who even have the ear of the king, the ones who associated themselves with the monarchy, either because they had family ties into the monarchy or because they were wealthy and financially supported the monarchy or just because of the virtue of the influence and the, uh, the sway that they held in the society, they, they were able even to sway the policies of the king. So they were kind of the equivalent of the Rockefellers or the Hursts or the Murdochs in American society and history. These guys were the power brokers, wealthy men of great influence, even among the house of Israel. And it says they lived at ease, They felt secure, Amos says, because in all of their affluence and with all of their influence, they were the ones who enjoyed all the perks that power brings to these kinds of people in the world. They they had authority, they were esteemed, they were revered, they were feared, they were in unique positions, again, to influence even the king and national policy in Israel, including economic policy, including taxation policies. And they were in a position to influence all of that in such a way so as to to benefit themselves. Often in Israel, at the expense of others, the people who were beneath them. They saw these, these commoners in Israel is existing to benefit them. They're down there in order to to generate the tax revenues that make my lavish lifestyle possible. That's how they looked at people. And in this era of Israel's history where the borders of their kingdom had been expanded, they'd seen a lot of military success, Uh, Their economy was thriving. It was sort of a golden age in Israel for the last 50 years in Amos' day. And and during this time, these notable men were riding high, living large, self-indulgent luxury. And, And they were living with this sense of security because in their pride, they thought that the source of all of the success that they had enjoyed was not God, but themselves. We did this. Kind of like Nebuchadnezzar, right? In Babylon, look at everything that I have done and built and made by my own hands until God just humbles him and tears him down. So that's the attitude here too. they, they, They thought the success all had to do with their achievements, their accomplishments, their abilities, their successes, because they had forgotten and they had neglected the reality that any good thing that they did and any good thing that came to them and any ability in them was only ever owing to the goodness and the grace of God toward them. They were proud and they were ungrateful, not humble. Not thankful towards God, and so instead of hearts of humility and gratitude producing lives of love towards others, 
and holiness that glorifies God, their pride and their selfishness was producing lives of fleshly indulgence and immorality and licentiousness and and unloving, uncompassionate greed and exploitation and depression. You see how all the sin comes from the pride. And so because the Lord sees everything and because He's the one who looks upon the heart, He doesn't just look at the outside, He sees the core of it. He knows all the deep-seated pride that drives all this sin in their lives and in their families and in their society. God, God looks at Israel and the hearts of its notable men of influence and He says, I hate your pride. I abhor it. I loathe it. Literally, it makes me sick, God is saying. Again, so these notable men are, are, are held up as sort of bellwethers of the society as a whole. And in verses 2 and 3, God asks this very provocative question. Look at it. He says, pass over to Calne and see, and from there go to Hamath the Great, then go down to Gath of the Philistines, And ask yourselves, are you better than these kingdoms, or is their territory greater than your territory? O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. Those first two cities, Calne and Hamath, those were were Aramean cities that Israel had conquered. And so now they were under Israel's power. They had been subjugated by Israel. And Israel was pretty proud of that. Gath was a city in the south, which was a very, very prominent Philistine city that had come under the control of the southern kingdom of Judah because they had conquered it, they had captured it. So the point of highlighting these three cities, see, is that these are all subjugated cities. They're not victorious cities, they're subjugated, they're conquered cities. They're all cities that fell and are now being ruled over by the people who were their enemies. And God says to Israel, in all of their puffery and pride, you think you're any better than these subjugated cities? So you see how God is setting His sovereign sights on the heart issue of their pride. Because they absolutely think they're better than those subjugated cities. They subjugated them. Of course we're better. We beat them. We conquered them. And the rest of chapter 6 is God's response to that question that he asks here. It's God saying, I know in your pride you think you're better than them, but in reality you're not any better than them. And you should not feel secure in the slightest in your smug, self-sufficient pride. Israel will be subjugated now. Israel will be invaded. Samaria will be fallen and destroyed. And all their proud ruling class and leaders of society will be carried off into exile. Because you're no better. Because your confidence is in self. And you're not humble before the Lord your God. In verse 3, God addresses them as those who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. And the word he uses there to put far away the day of disaster means means to cast something out with contempt and hatred and violence. See, that's what the leaders and the most prominent people of Israelite society, this is what they were doing with God's word. The prophets are saying, unless you trust the Lord, and if you keep walking in your pride and sin, judgment's going to come. And they didn't want to hear that, so they cast it out. They threw God's word out. Because they didn't want to admit in their prideful hearts that they were culpable before God. So they totally rejected Amos' problem. They laughed, they scoffed when Amos came to them and said... Everything that you're clinging to, everything that you feel secure in is going to come tumbling down. Whatever, we got this. They felt invariably safe and secure because they had so much exaggerated confidence in themselves when no human being should have any confidence in themselves ultimately, but only in God. 
So verses 4 through 6 paint this picture of how in their pride, which led to self-indulgence, in their self-sufficiency that led to all this sin, in spite of the word of God, they just carried on in their lives of ease and affluence, even though God was saying, this road that you're on, this path, this trajectory leads to destruction. They said, whatever. It's got us this far. We're just going to keep going. They're lying on beds of ivory. The pictures, these, these are pictures of just ridiculous opulence and excessive luxury. They're lounging around on couches and stuffing themselves with gourmet food, chanting drinking songs with as much enthusiasm as David sang praises to God, only they're not singing to God, they're singing in praise of themselves. They're rollicking around and sinful sensuality and drunkenness, right? It says they don't even drink wine out of, they're not even refined enough to drink sip wine out of glasses or, or goblets. They just slog it down by the bowl full. They're anointing themselves with the finest oils normally reserved for monarchs and kings because they thought they were the most worthy of this kind of pampered treatment and luxury. But all of that luxury... All of that self-indulgence had utterly dulled their senses to what Amos calls the ruin of Joseph at the end of verse 6 there. And he means the spiritual ruin that they had brought. The inner rot and decay that had come to characterize Ephraim, the heritage of Joseph. You've wrecked the whole nation. You've not led them in humility and and spiritual reverence and honor towards God. And that's resulted in in moral rot and decay in the nation. Everything's ruined and disgusting now on the inside, and, and you don't even sense it. You don't even care. And so, verse 7, because of all that pride that manifested itself and all that sin that God has so painstakingly exposed so far here in Amos, he says, therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile these prominent people of the society. When the Assyrians come, they're taking you guys first. And the revelry of those who stretch themselves out on these couches and beds of ivory, that shall all pass away. You won't have anything to be happy about anymore. Because their confidence, their pride was in self. And because of that, their luxury and safety and security is going to vanish. Now understand that in highlighting the leaders of the nation, Amos and God through Amos is once again speaking to the nation as a whole. He's not dividing people up into classes like it's, it's become popular to do in our world. Amos isn't a Marxist who believes that society is fundamentally made up, definitionally composed of, of two groups, those who are oppressed and those who do the oppressing Amos's audience isn't just the oppressors. Amos knows what history actually shows, which is that wickedness is bound up in the hearts of all human beings across all the social and economic and cultural strata. And that the leaders of nations, the leaders of movements, the leaders of societies, the leaders of families, the leaders of churches bear a massive weight of responsibility because not only is sin bound up in their heart, it's bound up in the hearts of people who follow them. And the tendency is for the people to follow their leaders. And followers tend to seek the level of of commitment that their leaders are content with and, and to exhibit the attitudes and the values that their leaders live by. So families and societies and nations and movements and churches very often will rise or fall depending on the spiritual and the moral quality of their leadership. So that's why God through Amos is focused on these guys because they've led the whole nation into ruin. You remember when we studied the book of Hosea? One of the takeaways that Hosea highlighted was like priest-like people, right? 
as the priests themselves who were supposed to worship and lead the people in worship, as they forsook God and indulged in idolatry, the people followed suit. And idolatry came and permeated the whole nation. And here Amos's point is very similar, like leaders like people. The spiritual tenor of the nation and society was being determined by the people at the top, but it was suffusing the whole nation with with rot spiritually and ruin. And the really horrible thing about these leaders wasn't just all of their self-indulgence and prideful self-dependence. It was that in all of the excess and greed and indulgence that grew up out of their festering pride, they exploited the people that as leaders they should have been caring for and providing for. And they didn't care. They didn't grieve over the social ruins that the spiritual rot and decay had produced in Israel. They only cared about what happened to them. So the people of power and influence were using their power and influence to exploit people and extract from people Again, the money that they needed to be able to live the lifestyles that they wanted for the, for the purpose of their own gratification only. They, they could have, as people of influence, used their influence to protect the people, to provide for the people who had less, to try to shape the policies of the nation through compassion and through love and through wisdom to make sure that no one was taken advantage of, no one was treated unjustly, to make sure that there were jobs, even for the poor people to be able to earn money for themselves and their families. But instead, the the wealthy people and the influential people, the people of power, used it to wire the whole system to pad their own pockets, to enrich themselves at the expense of everybody else. They weren't generous, they weren't gracious, and they didn't care because they were all about self. Because their hearts were full of pride, so others didn't matter, only self. And in that way, they abused the position of power and influence and squandered the leadership that God had entrusted to them. And then in response to all of the greed and exploitation that grew up out of their pride, the people who were being oppressed followed suit and treated people the same way even though their situation was different from the wealthy ones, the prominent ones, their hearts were the same. All about self, arrogantly thinking of themselves as the most important, better than others, willing to do whatever their selfish pride justified in order to get what they needed and what they wanted. So it festered throughout the whole society. And people were exploiting one another, whatever level they were, across all the strata, like leader, like people especially in terms of the inclinations of their hearts and their sinful attitudes. Selfish ambition and pride became the standard that was set from the top down. You contrast that all with with what Jesus says, who's the ultimate leader, right? Jesus is the one by whom and through whom and for whom All things were created. He's the ultimate leader. He's the king of all kings. He's the Lord of all lords. Contrast the leaders in Israel with him and the way he uses his power, his authority, his influence as the one who is God of gods. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 20. He's talking to his disciples and he says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, the unbelieving Gentiles, they lord their authority over people. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, Jesus says. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came... Not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the rulers of Israel in Amos' day were like exactly like the Gentile leaders 
that Jesus described. See, they lorded their authority over people. They used their authority to, to subdue other people instead of building other people up. They used their authority to, to profit and benefit themselves instead of profiting and benefiting the people they're leading. That's what leaders are supposed to do. Jesus exemplifies it. The incarnate God, right? The eternal almighty Lord of the universe says this isn't how it works. In the universe that I made and reign over, this is not how it's designed to work. It's a perversion of his order by the prideful heart of man that causes leaders to tend to think that ruler and servant are opposites and and cannot be combined. But to Jesus, they're absolutely connected, right? Ruler and servant. If you're going to be a good ruler, you have to be a servant. A true leader is a self-sacrificing servant. And the one who is a servant of others, he says, is the best one to lead. Because he's not going to use his leadership just to benefit self, but to bless others. And Jesus didn't just say that. And not only did he demonstrate it and epitomize it in his own life, in fact, he's wired the whole world to work this way. True servants, true leaders are servant leaders. And servant leaders recognize this, that they exist, their leadership exists in God's order, in God's design. Their leadership exists in order to ensure other people's growth and benefit and blessing and greatness. That's That's what a leader is there to do in God's order. But worldly leadership, see, that's rooted in human pride, flips it on its head and assumes the opposite, right? Worldly, fleshly, prideful leaders assume that the people exist in order to make the leaders great. And that's where it all goes wrong all the time. When leaders lead that way, They're cutting against the the fabric of the order that Jesus himself designed in this world. And then things fall apart. And destruction follows. Not because the world is fundamentally made up of, of oppressors and oppressed. People with privilege and people without privilege. That's not the problem. And the solution is, is not to to pit the oppressors and the oppressed against one another in order to try to bring some kind of equality. Equality isn't the problem. Sinful pride is the problem. There's always going to be people who have more and people who have less. There's always going to be leaders and the people who are being led. There's always going to be people who are wealthier than other people. The problems come when people are pridefully committed to self no matter which group they're in. Sin is the problem. When leaders aren't servants, that's the problem. When they're not committed to increasing the good of the ones they're leading, that's the problem. And when the ones being led aren't humble and self-sacrificing in their own lives and and aren't committed to honoring God-given authority in their own lives and submitting to God and submitting to one another, that's the problem. And that's where all the problems come from. And we see this worldly, prideful kind of leadership all the time, don't we? We see it in nations like our own when those who rise to power tend to see the people as being in service to them and their position instead of really seeing themselves as being servants of the people, which is how it's designed. We see it in families where parents treat their kids that way. You're here to make me great. You're here to honor me. You're here to bless me. And every time they don't because they're kids and sometimes they're difficult, parents get really, really frustrated with them because they think they're not accomplishing the goal. Well, the goal isn't that. The goal of the parent is to be there to bless and make their kids great. We see husbands treating wives this way instead of understanding that in God's economy, They exist to pour themselves out, even as Christ poured himself out for the growing good of their families. Churches, 
where pastors see their congregations and ministries as a means unto their own selfish ambitions to be popular, to become celebrity status, to be famous, to be successful. Instead of seeing the congregation the way God defines it, Peter says, this is the flock of God. It's not your flock. These aren't your people that are there to serve you. This is God's flock of sheep that you're there to serve. God's sheep entrusted to their care to selflessly and humbly and and sacrificially just like Jesus lead and feed and protect and provide for. This is the way God designed it to work in this world. This is the way God made leadership to work in this world, especially in the family and the church where, where they are institutions that God ordained. And he designed it that way because he's that way. This is, this, is, this is how God is as the eternal creator, the almighty one, the holy one. He's the one who came here as the son of man, not to be served, but to serve and to lay down his life as a ransom for many. And that has to define us. God's word is abundantly clear. See that all the leaders in this world are there because God put them there. They're there because of divine appointment. That doesn't mean that they always lead in godly ways, of course, hardly. But it's absolutely true, right, that the same all-sovereign God who sits in heaven and does all that He pleases, who changes the times and the seasons, even as we saw last week from chapter 5, He's the same sovereign ruler who sets up kings and who removes them. Which is what Daniel proclaimed in Daniel chapter 2. And he proclaimed it straight to the face of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Who was not a humble, godly servant ruler. Not yet at least. Not until God humbled him. Leadership is by divine appointment, and anyone who God sovereignly allows the privilege of leading, God can also sovereignly remove. So in the rest of the chapter, verses 8 through 14, the focus shifts from the leadership problem that Israel had to the root cause of that problem, and all of the problems of wickedness that it brought, which is this problem of human pride. Verse 8, the sovereign God swears by himself because in reality there's no possible higher authority to swear by. He swears by all that he is as God, as the one in whom all things exist. He swears that he absolutely abhors human pride. We may say, well, it's common and And I actually have done some pretty impressive things. And I actually am kind of special and important. And I actually actually think I have some reason to believe that I'm better than than these people. God abhors it. You, You let that kind of pride sit in your heart and start to influence the things you say, the things you think, the things you do, the way you treat other people. God abhors all of it. In this case... It's the pride that had come to characterize and corrupt and pollute the heritage of Jacob, the whole nation of Israel. It was their pride that caused all the other sin and debauchery and injustice and idolatry in Israel. Like cancer, it it ate away the soul of Israel, of God's people. It was pride that motivated them to turn their eyes away from God in the first place. It was pride that made them put their hope in their military strength and all the strongholds of Samaria more than they put their hope in Him. God hated all of their opulent palaces, not because wealth is evil, not because nice things are evil, but because their palaces and their summer houses and their Ivory beds were all just emblems of of all of this sort of swaggering self-confidence and self-indulgence and self-sufficiency that that said, I'm a big deal and I'm worth it. It It was a sign of their lack of humility and faith and love. 
And all of that unrepentant pride was the cause of God's abandonment of his own people. You think you can stand on your own? Then let's see how you do. When I step aside and let the Assyrians come, let's see how you do without me, God says. And we wonder, how can it be that God would use the prideful Assyrians as instruments to sovereignly judge the prideful people of Israel, and you have to wait to Habakkuk to to get the answer to that. God does what God does. But here, Israel, who thought they had made it in this world and had it made in the shade, they were just luxuriating on all their self-reliance and fleshly indulgence. In reality, in reality, they were on the brink. They were on the very threshold of a coming impending disaster and national catastrophe that would, that would put their nation to an end. So in verses 9 and 10, Amos shows the tragedy of what's coming by focusing in on how it's going to impact a typical family in Israel. Quickly now, all the men of the house are going to die. Some of them because they'll have to be conscripted to fight as soldiers in a losing battle against the Assyrians. Others are going to die because of starvation and and pestilence which will follow. And then when all the men of the house are dead, a relative's going to have to come and remove all the bodies. And he's going to find someone that's still alive there in the house and he's going to ask if anyone else is alive and the answer is going to be no. Everybody's gone. And the response will be silence. We must not mention the name of the Lord. What does that mean? This word silence is the word haas in Hebrew. And it was the word that God used in the prophets here, also in Habakkuk and Zephaniah and Zechariah, to signal the approaching of the Almighty God. The nearness of the Holy One. The Lord is in His holy temple. Habakkuk said, let all the earth keep silence before Him. It's an expression of deep reverence and the the fear of the Lord so that the people will know here in this context that the tragedy that had fallen on Israel didn't just come as a result of, of natural things in this world. It didn't just come by the hand of the Assyrians. This was the Lord's doing. It was God who sovereignly tore them down in their haughty pride because they'd ignored him for too long. They'd lived in their own strength. They'd lived for their own vain glory too long. And now it's too late for them to call out to him for help. So just be quiet and sit under the discipline of God because he's the one sending the disaster. And then the concluding verses, 11 through 14, show this horrifying irony that comes when pride festers in the human heart. And so people and families and societies live for the sake of their own desires and according to their own wisdom and in all of their self-reliant strength, it doesn't get them where they hope it'll get them. Instead of having all the personal enrichment that their pride was was striving for, they're going to lose everything. It's all going to get dashed to pieces, verse 11 says. And so verse 12 exposes the utter foolishness of letting pride be your guide, of letting pride govern your life. And it does that with these rhetorical questions. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? That second question, does one plow there, either says that, does one plow there, or some of the ancient manuscripts have the word sea, like ocean. Would you you plow the ocean with a team of oxen? Either way, whether it's plowing the ocean or plowing a field of rocks, the meaning is the same. The meaning, it's, it's a rhetorical question with the expected answer of no. Of course not. Horses aren't stupid enough 
to run at a full tilt on hard, slick rocks where their hooves might slip. They, even the horse gets that you have to walk slowly on the rocks. And farmers aren't dumb enough to try to plow fields of rocks, much less try to plow the ocean with a team of oxen. Why would you do that? And yet, God says to Israel, yeah, but you have turned justice into poison. You're acting more foolishly than a horse. You've turned the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. Wormwood is is bitterness. In their pride, justice, which should have made people thrive in Israel, was turned into poison, which caused the whole nation to wither and die. In their pride, the, the sweetness of righteousness, like a ripe piece of fruit, the sweetness of holiness and goodness was turned into bitterness. Literally like a a stomach-turning, vomit-inducing bitterness. Who would do that? Who would be so foolish as to turn something that makes other people thrive into something that kills them? Who would be so dumb as to turn something sweet into something vile and bitter and disgusting? Verse 13, it's those who let pride be their guide. They're the fools. You who rejoice in Lodabar, which is the name of a city, and the name literally means nothing in Hebrew. And who say, have we not by our strength captured Karnaim for ourselves. And the name of that place means strength. Cities that mean nothing and strength. Those were two places that Israel had conquered in their history. And probably the names are significant here, meaning something like, Hey Israel, all your strength has ended up for nothing. Whatever the case, the point is clear enough. It was their pride, it was their self-reliance that led to all the sin that very ironically became their great downfall so that actually relying on their strength ironically ended up getting them nothing. Whereas walking in humility and faith and humble, faithful, godly, self-sacrificing, unconditional love and obedience, that's the path of life that God has defined which leads to fullness of joy. And pleasures forevermore, Psalm 16 says. So verse 14 very straightforwardly brings all of the irony full circle. Instead of humbly trusting God, instead of walking by faith in Him, they let pride guide them. They lived for self. They lived in their own strength, like they didn't need God, like life was all about them, like they were something special, like they were entitled to every good thing that they wanted in this world, like the gratification of their desires was what mattered most in this world and what other people existed in the service of. And so instead of having everything that they selfishly and arrogantly strived for, in reality they end up with nothing. They end up in exile, they end up with less than nothing. They who had oppressed others for their own selfish gain would be oppressed from their northern border to their southern border, the entire nation. And in actual history, that's precisely what happened. And it happened about 30 short years after Amos wrote these words. And the message is, blessed is he and blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, but woe to the one or to the nation or to the church that substitutes selfish pride for humble, grateful praise. James says, and Peter says, both quoting from the wisdom of Proverbs, that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Proverbs says, pride goes before destruction. That's just how it works, and it's not just what God will do, it's how He's wired the whole world to work. If if pride is guiding you and defining the course of your life and and the tenor of your relationships, it's going to end up badly. A haughty spirit always comes before a fall, Proverbs 16, 18. Jesus said that the economy 
of God's eternal kingdom is such that the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. And what he means by that is that the one who lives for self and arrogantly and pridefully thinks that they're better than others and whose life reflects that attitude, looking down on others, or worse, pushing others down in order to raise themselves up, that person's going to end up being last, opposed by God, brought down by God in their pride. But the ones who see themselves as least, as, as existing in this world to be in service to God and others, no matter what the cost to self, which is what love is if it's defined by Jesus, right? Being willing to meet other people's needs regardless of the cost to self. Could, couldn't we define love like that? But does that define the way we love one another? The ones who see themselves as least and don't let selfish ambition and pride direct them, who in humility count others more important than themselves and put others' needs in front of their own and live as self-sacrificing servants and love unconditionally instead of requiring other people to earn their love and, and withholding their love from people who they decide haven't deserved it. Those who are least, those who are most like Christ, came not to be served, but to serve. To lay his life down for his enemies. Those will be the ones who will enjoy the greatest blessings of God in this life and for eternity. And so, the message for all of us today is two-sided. First of all, yes, let the double-edged sword of God's living active word pierce us to the core and show us the pride that does remain. It does remain. It is at the core of all of our sinful hearts. It makes us think that our lives are our own. It makes us think that it's all about us. It makes us think that there are certain things we deserve in this world instead of seeing that in our pride and sin, all we really deserve is God's everlasting judgment. It makes us think that we're better than others and that somehow they exist to serve us instead of the opposite, which is actually true. We need to recognize that anything we have, every breath of air that we breathe, every drop of sunshine that we enjoy, every moment of provision that we enjoy, it's all a gift an undeserved gift from the God who loves us and who said His only begotten Son to lay down His life for us. And so then secondly, the message is, when you do let the Word of God expose the pride in your heart and convict you of its poison and, and bitterness, then look to Christ who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but let go of everything that was actually his and that he was actually entitled to in heaven in order to come down here in the form of a servant to become obedient to suffering and death for you, for your pride, on a Roman cross. And let that humility, that self-sacrificing servanthood of Christ, let it pour contempt on all your pride and fill you with a godly humility and gratitude and Christ-like unconditional love that seeks to serve and not to be served, that looks to be used by God even if it means being poured out, even if it means decreasing in order to see other people built up. Because in God's economy and in God's image and being conformed to the image of Christ's glory, that's, that's why we all exist. In order to bring glory to God first and in order to increase goodness in others second. Think what this world would look like if everybody was committed to doing that. Instead of seeing others as existing in service to our good and for the sake of our glory, which is what everybody in the world is committed to doing, which is why the world is such a mess. Godly humility is the only way 
that God is glorified and Christ is exalted. And I'll tell you what, Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples, they'll know you're Christians by your love. If we love this way in our church, then the world will know not only that we belong to Christ, but they will know the love that Christ is. His gospel will be manifested. His goodness will come to bear in this world through us. So let's pray this morning as God's word pierces and penetrates our hearts and drives us towards Christ, even at the table, who loves us and who gave himself up for us, that this love would be forged in us. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would use your word and its exposition of what human pride is and all of the bitterness and poison that comes from it. Father, use this truth to help us to very honestly see all of the lingering residues of pride that remain within us and to confess it to you and to acknowledge that that you abhor all of it, that none of it is acceptable and okay. And Father, would you help us to see the great contrast of the humility of Christ and the love with which he has freely loved us. And would you fill us with gratitude? And would you make us to love him who loved us? And would you make us to love as we have been loved? And Father, through that, would you glorify yourself in your church and in this world, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Page 12, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Stand and let's sing to God together.